0: plain fact is that the planet does not need more successful people, but it does desperately need more peacemakers, healers, restorers, storytellers, and lovers of every kind. It needs people who live well in their places. It needs people of moral courage, willing to join the fight to make the world habitable and humane. And these qualities have little to do with success as we have defined it. David Orr, 2005. where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst.
1: And I'm Michaela Mast.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: All season long, we've posed questions that require some imagination. But what happens when it's time for the theoretical to take shape? In this episode, we'll talk with some of the healers, restorers, and storytellers of our world. We'll continue to tackle some unjust systems that need reimagining, and then we'll confront some of the emotions that come with learning to live well as we confront climate change. The frustrations, fears, and hopes that often go unspoken, but are never far from the
0: surface. It's
2: still there. <laughs> so if you want a laptop.
0: As you may remember, our last episode found us walking the hillsides of Pittsburgh, looking at trash.
3: See here, there's a, a bed spring. There's a yeah. piece of furniture from somebody's house. Mm-hmm old computer
0: case. And when we were talking to Myrna, she told us that we absolutely needed to talk to someone else in Pittsburgh while we were here.
4: Uh, Mark Dixon. Have you heard of Mark Dixon at no. all? Mm-hmm. They did something very similar to what, what you're, you're doing in a way.
0: We smiled and nodded, knowing full well that our less than 48 hours in Pittsburgh afforded us little room for additional interviews. But lo and behold, that night, an event popped up in my Facebook news feed. The quality of the air we breathed at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, 10 o'clock the next morning, featuring none other than, you guessed it, Mark Dixon.
1: So the next morning found us rushing into the seminary to hear the final parts of Mark's presentation. He greeted us with a group hug, ecstatic when we told him of our project. But sadly, we parted away soon after, both with impossibly booked schedules. We were on our way back to our host home at 5 o'clock that evening. Here we are, on a bus. When we received a phone call. Any chance you could meet me in 15 minutes? It was Mark. Google Maps told us that we were remarkably close to him, only a 10 minute walk if we got off at that very bus stop. And that's how we found ourselves seated across from Mark Dixon at the Pittsburgh Quaker Meeting House.
2: You know, civilization has enough productive capacity right now. What we don't have is the cultural compass set correctly to ensure our long term success.
1: Mark sat across from us with chocolate milk in hand, fueling up after a bike ride across the city to reach us.
2: And I felt like David Orr gave me the freedom to consider an alternative definition of success that didn't rely on financial well-being or traditional trappings of success awards or degrees to fill my heart with satisfaction that I'm doing good work out in the world.
1: Though he may not say it himself, Mark is one of those people in the quote by David Orr from the beginning of the episode. He's a person of moral courage, advocating to make the world a more habitable and humane place.
2: Yeah, so my name is Mark Dixon. I'm a filmmaker based out of Pittsburgh. And I think of myself as an environmental activist, public speaker, filmmaker, photographer.
0: When he was our age, Mark took a similar journey, but one that makes our endeavor look like child's play. After graduating college, Mark and two of his close friends undertook a massive filmmaking road trip, visiting all 50 states and ending up with the footage that later became his first documentary, YURT, an acronym for Your Environmental Road Trip.
2: Subaru, Subaru, super, 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 Subaru, Subaru. Subaru's everywhere. And we called it the Suba Rule because the amount of greenness seemed to be directly proportional to the number of Subarus that we would see concentrated around the area.
0: Since then, Mark has produced a film on Rachel Carson, the author of Silent Spring, and had his photography featured in a number of places, including the National Museum of African American History and Culture. His most recent venture is a documentary on Pittsburgh's air quality.
2: So I I am working on a film about air quality called Inversion, the unfinished business of Pittsburgh's air. And uh, it works on the concept of an inversion in three ways. The first is that Um, very often as a jogger from California, I would jog around in Pittsburgh and I would catch a whiff of something awful, acrid, industrial, sulfurous.
1: Mark says that on rare occasion, the airy breeze in Pittsburgh is pristine, but that most days he's disappointed. He talks of the crisp, sweet stream water he sipped as a child in the Sierra Nevadas and the similar purity he craves in the airy breeze. When he first started noticing just how rare it was to breathe in fresh air, he started investigating.
2: And so there is a, an air quality hotline you can call with the Allegheny County Health Department where I live. And so I would call the health department and ask about that. And they said, oh, of course. Well, that day it was an inversion. And an inversion is a weather condition where the air is trapped low to the ground by a variety of forces, uh, you know, of, of meteorological conditions. The thing is, though, and I knew knew enough about meteorology to know that inversions don't inherently smell. It's just that they trap things that smell close to the ground. Mm -hmm. And things that are more concentrated smell more because, you know, smell is often a function of concentration in the air.
1: But talking to the health department didn't go very well. When Mark tried to find the source of the problem, he just ran into circular conversations instead.
2: Because they just kept kind of reiterating that, well, it's an inversion and it's difficult to litigate or or catch somebody on a smell. Um, I've looked into it more and found that there are laws that say you can't emit a smell across a private boundary, but the health department would say, well, but that's also, that's really hard to litigate because what's a bad smell and what's a good smell? And some judges are just like not into sulfur being a bad smell (laughs) or something. Yeah, I got this sense from the health department that they were trying to talk me off my, off my ledge of concern Mm -hmm. and say, you know, you're going to be fine. Um, But I wasn't convinced of that in part because I know that Allegheny County has, we're in the top 2% of cancer risk due to air quality of any county nationwide.
1: So Mark decided to take things into his own hands. He was involved in placing stationary air monitors around the city.
2: We only have about, I think about 40 purple air monitors up right now. (laughs) However, they are good at figuring out where the hotspots are and Um, we're finding that there seem to be hotspots in the Mon Valley just south of Pittsburgh. That's
0: the Monongahela River Valley, an area to the south of the city that has historically been the primary location for many of Pittsburgh's steel factories. In addition to the monitors, Mark helped develop an app called Smell Pittsburgh in which your everyday citizen can report interesting
2: or funky smells. And so this is an app that has taken off in popularity, which you wouldn't think would be a thing in a city that didn't have a smell problem. Yeah. But we do. <laughs> you don't meet people through the app, but you know that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really powerful part about galvanizing a movement to make for change, is that people need to recognize that they're not alone and that they're not even the first one.
0: The same day we met Mark, we sat down with a man named Jamil Bey, who is also trying to make the city of Pittsburgh a more habitable and humane place, specifically for underrepresented neighborhoods of the area. Surprisingly, Jamil also told us a story of poor air quality, but for him, air pollution and the other problems he encounters can't be thoroughly addressed without a close inspection of the foundational principles of our society.
5: (laughs) Give me another one. I like that one. I'm going to write that one down. (laughs) Um,
1: We met with Jamil in the Everyday Cafe in Pittsburgh's historic neighborhood of Homewood. The cafe was opened a couple years ago by a local church hoping to address some of the neighborhood's challenges. As we watched the place fill up, it was evident that this is a social hub for the area, the kind of place Jamil hopes to support in his work.
5: I'm Jamil Bay, president of the Urban Kind Institute. Uh, we work in most city, most Pittsburgh neighborhoods and some of the surrounding uh, boroughs and municipalities.
1: Urban Kind is a consultancy think tank where they advance policies, practices, and programs that are kind to urban people and environments.
5: And our work is basically to engage residents and to bring the conversations that are happening outside of neighborhoods into neighborhoods.
1: Jamil grew up climbing trees and swinging from vines and playing in the soil, right on the outskirts of Pittsburgh in McKinley Park. This city is home for him and it shows in his work. He has a very compassionate outlook toward the communities of Pittsburgh.
5: But the the Urban Kind Institute, grew out of the recognition for the challenge of people not being engaged in a conversation uh, as an even stakeholder. And without having the chance to sit around and think through things because we have lives to live as you know, parents, as teachers, as truck drivers, You know, we just accept what we hear and we don't really have a chance to critically examine these things.
0: Like Mark, Jamil is attempting to equip ordinary citizens with the tools to make change. At UrbanKind, they translate research and policy, deciphering the jargon to make it more understandable, and then bring the needs and priorities of a community back to the policymakers. And we needed to find a way to get people, uh, meet people where they
5: are, and bring people's needs and elevate people's needs
0: and goals to public conversations. Jamil's work is motivated by frustration that policy doesn't usually uphold a basic principle, kindness. One example he gave takes us to the same area Mark mentioned, a town just south of Pittsburgh along the Monongahela River called Clareton.
5: My first teaching job when I graduated, when I finished undergraduate, was in Clareton.
1: Jamil recently ran into a student he taught, who now lives elsewhere, and works in life insurance.
5: And he was telling me that he's surprised that the company still lets him underwrite policies at Clareton. Because the men die in their 50s.
1: Situated in what's often called Steam Valley, Clareton is known for its poor air quality. The town is home of a coke plant, owned by U.S. Steel. Coke is a fuel used in the production of steel, made by burning coal, a process that releases a variety of hazardous air pollutants identified by the EPA as toxins. As Mark mentioned, Allegheny County is notorious for its poor air quality, and the air quality in Clareton is one of the worst. According to the 2013 Pittsburgh Regional Environmental Threats Analysis Report, cancer risk is twice as likely for residents of Allegheny County than the surrounding counties. And for residents of Clareton, the risk factor skyrockets by 20 times compared to the surrounding communities in the county. And in addition to high risk of cancer, asthma poses a problem for many of the residents. Jamil mentioned a doctor, Deborah Gentili, who has recently brought this issue of asthma to light.
5: And she is doing some asthma education and asthma awareness stuff in Clarity. And she's identified about a quarter of the kids asthmatic or near-asthmatic in that community.
1: In fact, according to another study, 35% of children at Clareton Elementary School have asthma. That's compared to 10 to 15% of children across Pennsylvania.
5: My first teaching job was at Clareton. There was no librarian kids use the public library a couple of blocks away if a teacher decided that they needed to use the library. So that usually meant, okay, no library. Of the school districts in the state, which there are more than 500 of, they're ranked number 485.
1: Ironically, Jamil says, one of the arguments for keeping the U.S. Steel Coke plant running in Clareton is that their tax dollars are helping to pay for the local schools, an argument that Jamil doesn't find particularly compelling.
5: Is the problem that we're trying to solve that we need to fund schools. Oh, well there's plenty of ways to think about that. If we think about it as, this is the solution. If I think, hey, I need something to drink and the only solution is a cup. Mm -hmm. Then if I don't have a cup, I'm out of luck. Well, if the challenge is, no, I need to get liquids into my mouth, well, I can turn on a hose. I can, you know, I can scoop water in my hand There are other ways. But if I'm thinking that the solution is the cup, I'm stuck in thinking about cups rather than the problem that we're trying to solve. If the problem that we're trying to solve is preparing young people for adult roles and responsibilities, then thinking about
0: how to fund that and how to get to that completely dismisses you as steel. In Jamil's perspective, it's not just a lack of creativity that's inhibiting decisions that promote the health of Claritin's residents. The bigger issue is that the state is more interested in solutions that support the market, which in his eyes gets to the root of the problem.
5: We're nowhere near getting to even imagining what justice is like in this country. That we've surrendered our political and economic decisions to capital, to making money, And that dominant narrative has defined our ability to think about solutions. Now, if we accept that, that we live in market economies and markets drive processes and capital is our economic system, but at its root, it's an economic system that is based on exploitation and injustice, that the best capitalists your job as a capitalist is to make as much money as you can. That's when we know you're successful. And you do that by exploiting resources, exploiting people, exploiting environments. So we can't ask for
0: justice when we've accepted injustice as the default goal. And so, said Jamil, environmental justice, political justice, educational justice, we shouldn't even use those terms. Because we. We've, bought in, we've accepted injustice as the default.
5: And so we can't get to that point where there's justice if we're still using markets and capitalism as our basis for solutions.
0: For Jamil, the problem Clariton has with air pollution is the result of a much larger, more pervasive obstacle. When solutions are driven primarily by a metric of progress that's measured by wealth, of course they won't prioritize the well-being of the children with asthma. There are structures, like capitalism, and ideals like power and wealth that need to be challenged before we can even consider justice. This wasn't the last time we heard this critique. Mark also
2: challenged our very basic ideas of prosperity and progress. Uh, Wes Jackson at the Land Institute. Wes Jackson said a thing that really kind of set me on my heels. It really shocked me at the time, not because I didn't believe him, but because I was a little bit afraid to think that thought. It was on their
0: road trip, Mark said, that they got to talk to Wes Jackson in Kansas.
2: Wes Jackson basically made a pronouncement to the country that... We need to measure our progress by how independent of the extractive economy we become, and we need to power down and make sure that people are clothed and fed. Basically a humane transition, I believe it was his sense that powering down was perhaps the best and or only way that human civilization could meaningfully make it through this pinch point of environmental crisis that we are quickly approaching, if not well into. Oh, and he added, he had this little addendum, and he said, and don't think we can efficiency our way out of this, (laughs) my fellow Americans.
1: Mark said that Wes Jackson pointed to the Jevons Paradox, that as we get more efficient at using a resource, we also tend to use more of that resource. In other words, a feedback loop is created.
2: The more you extract, the cheaper it becomes, and the more you use. As a resource becomes less expensive, you find ways of using more of it, and so that creates a greater need to extract more of it. If our economy is also geared towards making things out of stuff you extract from the earth, then if you get more efficient at that, it frees up capital
1: and free capital simply results in more extraction.
2: You have to actually change your what you're doing and also put a cap on that on the extractive activity so that when you do gain savings from moving into renewable or more efficient mode of, of production the savings are not put back into the traditional economy but they're put forward into propagating that transition into those renewable regenerative economic endeavors. So efficiency isn't enough.
0: And that was hard for Mark to hear because his background is in industrial engineering.
2: Industrial engineers are all about efficiency. And so to hear someone say, A, we can't power through this, we have to power back, power down. And to say we can't efficiency our way through it were kind of two major realizations that, that I wasn't really ready to see until I had really mulled over it.
0: So those are the types of realizations that emphasize the enormity of climate change. This concept of powering down is similar to Jamil's insistence. We must redefine success and wealth and recenter our priorities. Mark likened the challenge of climate mitigation to a
2: ship heading towards land at full speed that we desperately need to start turning. We're well into the crunch phase of trying to turn this ship. We're already hitting rocks along the side of the canal with our giant you know, super cruiser, giant, super tanker ship. And it's a very narrow canal and we have to steer it properly. And it takes a while before the steering actually affects the direction of the ship. And so we've got some heavy turning to do right now. And that's that's why I like to emphasize setting that compass. If we just keep doing stuff, you know, if we just keep firing the propeller down there on the bottom of the ship, then we just push harder into the rocks.
0: But if we let our foot off the accelerator, Mark says then we stand a
2: chance. Power down doesn't mean like everybody dies and we, you know, we go away in the cold and the dark. Powering down means you put take the foot off the accelerator and you allocate the wealth that's been accumulated into civilization in a manner that is humane and fair and thoughtful and scientifically based. And then in this extra time that you get from pulling off the throttle, use that precious time to then turn that wheel hard as much as possible so that then when we do push on that gas pedal again, and maybe it won't be a gas pedal by then, maybe it'll be like a, a sail or a, or a battery-powered boat or who knows what, um, then maybe we'll be going in the right direction.
1: Hearing Mark and Jamil talk about the need to rebuild the foundations of our society gives me this sinking feeling in my stomach. Everything needs to change, and such an undertaking makes me want to curl up in bed and sleep. My exhaustion hinges on the question, what can I actually do? I try to be optimistic, but whatever systems we're up against seem so nebulous and untouchable that it leaves me feeling like the things I can control won't make any difference. And that is a significant component to my grief. I'm afraid of what is to come, but I also feel helpless and paralyzed and stuck. As I've begun to express these feelings, I've found many others who feel the same way. This is not an uncommon experience. And sharing in my frustration and grief comes as a huge relief. So this raises an interesting question. What if the biggest danger to humanity is not denial of climate change, but awareness of the enormity of the challenge without a community to share it with?
0: We're returning one last time to Bluffton, Ohio, where we had a conversation with a couple who, when it comes to climate change, are also finding themselves in the grieving process.
4: For me, uh, I'm interested in in the emotion associated with climate change. I did a program at church about grief in relationship to climate change and in relation to our faith and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a very emotional person so there again I, ha- I have little choice but, but to pay attention to it because mm-hmm. when I don't pay attention to my grief I find I, I start to get a little squirrely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so.
0: That's Sarah Brenner. We sat down with her and her husband Ken Lawrence at their home just outside of Bluffton. It's a beautiful setting. We could hear the trickling of the creek and the rustling of the trees just outside.
4: Uh, I'm Sarah Brenner. We're here in Bluffton, Ohio. I can say that we moved here about four years ago and we're both retired, but we're both very busy on the four acres that we have making improvements to it and trying to live sustainably and uh, not too heavy on the land.
3: And I'm Ken Lawrence, I'm Sarah's husband. I'm a retired machinist and bicycle mechanic.
0: Ken and Sarah met in Madison, Wisconsin, and lived there for years before moving to Bluffton, but they haven't wasted any time getting to know their neighbors. And one thing they've brought with them from Madison is the idea of transition towns.
3: Transition is a little bit hard to define for me, but I I can read a very short description from their website that kind of tells you what the what it's all about. The transition movement is comprised of vibrant grassroots community initiatives that seek to build community resilience in the face of such challenges as peak oil, climate change, and the economic crisis. There's transition transition towns that are often called all over the world and they're all different. Just people in, in their community kind of get together and Look at ways to improve how they live, to, to prepare in a way.
4: And there's always cake. <laughs> <laughs> One of the aspects of, of Transition, to always have cakes. So.
1: Ken and Sarah started Transition Bluffton a few years ago because they're worried about turning the ship in time, as Mark would say. They've embraced the idea of powering down. But according to Ken, the process isn't just about doom and gloom.
3: We can't depend on on all the the modern conveniences that we're accustomed to, and we're looking at you know, ways to live that might might work. You know, if some things are are lost, but it's it's not it's not just about preparing for hard times. But it, it's there's a lot of fun activities involved too, and it's we're really looking to find a, a better way to live, not just a poor substitute, but it's actually a a better way to live than what many things that we're doing now.
0: Ken and Sarah would also consider themselves to be preppers, a colloquialism that has traditionally belonged to those preparing for the collapse of civilization, but has been expanded recently to include those preparing for dramatic shifts in climate.
3: We we expect, or we, we think it's very likely, that there will be significant disruptions, probably fairly soon, to our modern industrial society. You know, climate change is, is already affecting a lot of people. A lot of people in North Carolina right now that I don't think they would argue that, that they're being affected in a pretty major way.
0: At the time of the interview, the Carolinas were recovering from the effects of Hurricane Florence, which devastated the East Coast in October. And Ken and Sarah explained that they think these dramatic events will become harder and harder to predict. So, as a result, they stockpile food in case trucking slows down and grocery stores aren't well supplied
3: and we have a, We actually have two wells now and one, one with a hand pump, so we we have access to water if if the electricity should go out so we're, we're trying to do some some things to be prepared if, if some of the modern conveniences become scarcer. Mm-hmm.
1: But Ken and Sarah have other motivations to live this way as well
4: yeah. It feels to me as though living, living a simple life is is an enriching thing, and and it's not dependent on any outcome. You don't have to do it because you feel obligated to cut back on your consumption. Or you know, in recent years, there've been these studies of happiness in the world, and it's interesting to see how how unhappy Western people are with all the stuff we have and all the modern conveniences and just how easy our lives are.
1: Sarah says that a significant part of her journey is realizing that the things that actually give her joy aren't going away. They're around her already. And for her, that makes a life of transition much easier.
4: I kind of look at, at what what has always made me joyful and what has always made me happy and seeing a lot of it is not dependent on my material well-being and i feel like as i said before i believe we're wondrously made and we have gifts that we don't use and we have an ability to live in harmony with the planet in ways that we have haven't used this the simple act of walking the simple act of using my senses connecting with my senses to the other living things around me Um, it's very direct way of of living and I try to practice that as part of my spiritual and emotional life uh, to kind of balance out what f- feels like just chaos around me and kind of mm-hmm. chaos in my intellectual mind that that wants to, to make it all crazy and complicated.
1: Yeah, Sarah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you talked about grieving um, as a really important component of this whole conversation and process. What do you say that um, like confronting climate change and and action, are the, are those important parts of the healing process for you? Or I'll give you a little context for this question. For me, when I first started learning about climate change, and well, my initial reaction was to avoid thinking about it, because it's scary, um, and I felt really isolated and alone within all of it, but this year has been really amazing for me because I'm spending eight hours a day um, thinking about climate change and talking to people about climate change and like I see it as kind of a, a way of yeah confronting the fear and I find hope in that so have you experienced a similar transition or um, what is it that that gives you the most hope? I, I probably
4: have, get hope from different places and most people I talk to. <laughs> uh-huh. And my hope has more to do with trusting mystery, leaving oh. leaning into mystery, um, not getting too attached to outcome, being a human being and a human doing, recognizing that I'm both finding things to do that are life-affirming and that I think will be helpful to humanity regardless of what nature decides to do. That I can find ways to occupy myself and occupy my emotions and my mind and my physical body in ways that are loving and life-affirming.
1: What Sarah said here is actually very similar to something Mark shared, too. They both say that they try not to get too attached to outcome. Mark used the phrase getting beyond hope, detaching ourselves from whether or not we'll make it, and instead finding joy and love in the process of building a better world.
4: I may may guess wrong about what other people need, and (laughs) I don't want to force my ideas on other people about what they need, but I do try to to move into the future, again, loving people and doing what I can for them to the best of my ability to discern what that is. Mm -hmm. I trust that we uh, are going to do this, whatever it is. We don't know Mm -hmm. what we're going to do, but that I think we are equipped for it. We were born to be... In harmony with whatever happens on the planet, and mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what comforts me. Right now, is mm-hmm. is feeling like we're on a path that that we're made for. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I think, more than anything else this season, the way Ken and Sarah talk about responding to climate change has stayed with me. We're really looking for a better way to live, Ken said. Not just a poor substitute, but actually a better way to live. And some weeks after that interview, I suddenly began to understand the profoundness of that shift. It's so easy for me to get hung up on the things that I'll no longer have when I begin to seriously transition away from a carbon-intensive lifestyle. But how many of those things really do contribute to making my life better? And even more audacious, what if some of those very things are actually the things holding me back from living a life that is whole, healthy, and happy? In other words, is it possible that responding to climate change could actually make my life better, make me happier? A couple weeks ago, Michaela showed me a cartoon On the right side, a man stands at a podium. The screen behind him shows a list of items. Energy independence, healthy children, clean water, livable cities. To the left of the cartoon stands a man shouting angrily, what if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? And for me, that's the whole crux of this idea. That's the reason I'm starting to find hope and joy in the climate change conversation. Because as I begin to make lifestyle changes, I'm realizing that this isn't just about sacrifice. It's about really getting down and investigating what things make our lives better and what things don't.
1: I think this is what Mark means by moving beyond hope and detaching ourselves from outcome. In my own life, even if I know that biking to work or consuming less cannot mitigate climate change on its own, It's fulfilling for other reasons. It's like a release. The empowerment I feel by taking initiative gives me the freedom of thought to move forward and think creatively and look for others who are doing the same. It leaves room for joy. And while Sarah reminded us that living a full, healthy, joy-filled life may not look the same for all of us, sharing in our grief and collaborating in transition seems like a good place to start.
0: When I think about responding to climate change, there's one story from the Bible that stands out to me. About halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, a rich young man walks up to Jesus. What do I need to do to ensure eternal life? He asks. Jesus lists the commandments, but he's not satisfied. All these I have kept, he said. What do I still lack? Jesus responds, Go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and follow me. And the young man went away sad for he had great wealth. For me, the young man's response has strong echoes to our collective response to climate change. What do we have to do to stop climate change? Asked the United States. But when the answer included no flying, efficient cars, fewer kids, the United States turned away sad for it had great wealth. We are the rich young man. It's hard for us to imagine drastic changes in our society. But what we often forget here is that Jesus is actually offering new life. He's flipping the conventional understanding of success upside down and saying, come, follow me, there is another way. And this idea that the Bible might already hold those lessons and is simply waiting for us to take them seriously, that's what keeps me going. When I say I can't separate thinking about faith from thinking about climate change, that's what I'm trying to get at. I think that Jesus' teachings might be meant for such a time as this. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer.
1: Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet, and transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop.
0: Special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions who is sponsoring this project.
1: A big thank you to Bridget Mullins and Aaron Earp who shared their home and food, lent us their car, and introduced us to the best ice cream in town.
0: And a quick shout out to Cecilia Lapsdalsus for sending me Mark's Facebook event at the Pittsburgh Seminary.
1: If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, feel free to let us know by sending us an email at shiftingclimates at gmail.com or consider leaving a review on iTunes.
0: You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Check out the photo essay that goes along with this episode and a preview of our last episode of the season next week and more. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mest. See you next week.